You're listening to The Andrew Miller Show. This episode, we're talking with Michael Ortade, Green Party candidate running for the State Senate District 1 in Connecticut, Connecticut's 1st Senate District, District 1. The issues Michael wants to tackle include housing, food deserts, criminal justice, racial justice, education, healthcare, and environmental justice. Holding a degree in early childhood education and currently a substitute teacher, Michael believes that children of Connecticut are entitled to an equitable education from birth to adulthood and plans to fight for a high-quality education for all children in Connecticut. He also vows to combat the inequitable amounts of malpractice and high mortality rates that occur for women of color. His experience with healthcare runs can read more about it at his campaign site, mike4ct.org. For now, let's hear what he has to say. Here we go. All right, Michael, thanks for joining today. How are you doing? Doing pretty well, man. Campaign trail is going pretty nicely. Um, mm. Everything's going pretty good. Ah, glad to hear that. So why uh, this particular office and why green? So I feel like we're at a really crucial um, time. This particular office, um, my incumbent says some really uh, disconcerting things um, to a black woman a few years ago Mm. uh, while she was lobbying in the Capitol. Basically, she had a pin on that said uh, stands with black women. And he came up to her and said uh, he should wear a pin that says stands with white men. And uh, his district is, uh, you know, his part of Hartford that he represents is predominantly black and brown. Um, And to be so disconnected from that part of your district to me was um, real concerning. You know what I mean? That was the, uh, one of the main reasons why I chose to, uh, to run against him. Um, but partially because I, I, I've been an activist um, in the community for two years now. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, this would be the natural next step of, um, you know, of what needs to be done. You know, uh, I don't want to beg politicians anymore to, uh, to do what we need them to do. Um, you know, and I feel like from both of the party lines, you know, that's where this part comes in. Uh, we see a lot of, you know, false promises and, and uh, things that they're, they're running on, but are they really standing on those issues? Um, and a lot of them are not. Uh, we are too focused on bipartisanship and not human rights, you know, not, uh, not civil rights, not the rights of the people. Um, and that's the reason why I decided to uh, run as a Green, because this party has shown me that it has values that align with taking care of our people taking care of our children and taking care of our planet. You know, these are all things that we need. Um, you know, the future is in our children. Our people deserve the uh, protection and rights afforded to them. Um, and our planet needs to be protected because it's where we all live. You know, bipartisanship is not going to protect our planet. No, not at all. And yeah, I mean, I think you're doing the right thing, especially running for state Senate because you know it's the state and local offices that don't get enough attention 
yet those are the ones that directly impact people where they live. And you're just mentioning how person you're running against is like so out of touch with uh, the con constituency. And it's probably just used to people just who choose the path of least resistance, people who just vote a down ticket and they just rely on that rather than having to actually deliver results. So it's right. good to see that you're actually doing what you're doing and actually providing an option and actually looking out for the constituents and actually real issues that affect the area and all that. And uh, did you face any challenges getting on the ballot? If so, what were they? So basically because of the, uh, the access to the ballot already uh, due to Mary San Sanders election, um, there is a, there was no issue getting on the ballot. That's good. Um, Andrew, there's a, <laughs> uh, is this live? Uh, no. Okay, so there's an issue. Um, oh, no, I know it's actually being taken care of right now. Thank you, God. A baby was just in the street. <laughs> oh, wow. So, Oof. yeah, so I'm glad safe. I got taken care of. I had to, I was going to jump out. By the way, I'm a teacher. Uh, so kids are very, like, they are very essential, and I care for them very deeply. Um, so if I see something, I usually try to get up and do something about it. Um, so that was alarming to me. <laughs> But don't worry, it looks like the neighbors are taking care of it, so. Oh, that's good. Yeah, glad to see uh, someone's taking care of it. Otherwise, uh, I was gonna jump yeah, up if you like had to be man. a good Samaritan and cut and run, <laughs> I totally understand. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. All right. And I was reading on your site uh, back in 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. You know, you not only joined others to uh, protest the inequities Black and brown people face at the hands of the criminal justice system, but also together you and others met with police chiefs, mayors, politicians, and community members from all over the state of Connecticut to develop policy as well as, as, well as countermeasures for the plethora of inequities. Now, did anything uh, good come from that or at least any meaningful takeaways from that or any challenges? How did it go? Well, the community was able to get the police accountability uh, bill passed through enough uh, you know, lobbying and advocacy work we were able to get the police accountability bill passed. Um, but, you know, to me, the police accountability bill, literally a few months afterwards, a young man by the name of Shamar Ogman um, was murdered by the police. Uh, and for me, it, it made the, uh, the whole ordeal of, of uh, passing legislation and, you know, going through the trouble of, of getting 10,000 10, uh, signatures on a petition. All of these things, it just made it bittersweet. It made me feel as though that uh, maybe we aren't we aren't moving fast enough. Maybe we aren't doing enough um, through the legislative process. And it's also one of the many other reasons why I decided to run for office. Because I feel like uh, you know we 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 say that we're going to um, increase the uh, the uh, the the focus on mental health. Um, and how we're going to be establishing teams to go out and, and deal with mental health crises and things like that. Um, but, you know, there isn't a fully united front like we're seeing out in, like, Denver, where there's things like the SAR program, where individuals are, uh, who are mental health dispatchers, uh, they go out and they, and they come into the community and they deal with a, me a medley of issues, um, and there have not been any reasons for them to call the police throughout 2,000 of those calls 
Wow. Uh, so far, since the program has began about, uh, I believe it was maybe about a year ago, um, they haven't needed to uh, to have police interfere with the work of the mental health dispatch. And to me, that program is brilliant because it's like almost like its own sort of ambulance, but specifically for mental health uh, dispatchers, right? Um, a dispatch team. So to me, I feel like that's something that we need in all of Connecticut, uh, not so much just one municipality or a few cities and towns, because Hartford does have a uh, have a mental health dispatch line, but they don't have as much as a program like the SAR program. Even when I called the uh, when I called the line just to ask questions, um, you know, I was telling them about the SAR program, and even they were like, "Wow, that's really nice." You know, it's like a, it sounds like a really good program. And I said, I would like to make your program really, you know, on par with the STAR program. And they said, it sounds good. You know, they respected the endeavors uh, because that program is still just not quite there. Um, but we'll get there. You know, once I'm in office, we'll be able to make sure that every town has that ability. Every town will have the ability to call a mental health dispatch regardless of the issue. Um, and, you know, and we'll be able to, you know, lessen our police violence, right? You oh, know, definitely. Um, especially in black and brown neighborhoods where mental health is almost, um, quote unquote, non-existent. You know, it's, it's not an issue that many of, of the individuals in our community are, um, you know, pay, pay much attention to um, because we just don't have the resources that would afford us the ability to pay attention to, it, you know? Yeah. No, that's good. That sounds like a really good program. There should be more of it going on, even like 2000, like just the numbers you're saying there for how much of a difference it makes. And it sounds like a win-win because, you know, it eases the burden off the police as well. I mean, right. more, I wish more people would realize that part of it because I know people like to get exactly. caught up in these arguments and think everything is either one extreme side or the other. And it's like, no, I mean, this, here's how it's a win-win. It could allow, I mean, it gives the less burden on the police and allows them to focus more on what they're needed for rather right. than instances where eh, maybe someone else who's better for that situation could handle it and making matters worse for them and then coming at the expense of you know just everyone else and then it turns into like this giant mess so this sounds like a good program and yeah i hope it does spread and i hope it does become more commonly used right oh wow i agree so, yeah so i'm you know, i'm glad to hear about this progress that's taking place because again it's a win-win for everybody and it's a win right. win for the people who need that mental health to have someone who's actually trained and actually knows how to respond to them and how to work with them through what they're going through. And it just works out. And then, yeah, and the police could be more worried about the police things like, hey, if there's a bank robbery, they could react to that quicker and not have right. to get caught up in all these things that could, you know, make it and worse it, for know, the person in distress or get them in trouble. And, you know, um, we could worry a lot less about the um, about violent crime and, and things of that nature if, uh, if, the, if the United States just passed, you know, better gun control laws. And, and there's the thing, you know, a lot of um, a lot of uh, people take issue with gun control. But as we grow as a nation and as we grow as a people, um, I think gun control needs to be looked at from a different lens. It does not mean that you know, that they need to have exact oversight over your over your guns. I think what people need to start looking at is is you having oversight over your guns. I don't know if you've heard of, like, uh, anything like smart guns. Have you heard about the smart guns and all that? 
Uh, vaguely sounds familiar. So, like, basically, these guns would be like coded to you. So, like, it'd be like a like a, a gun that would like say you're only if you're in its vicinity, it would be able to be used. You know what I mean? Like, it's coded to you, almost like a like a like a like almost like some sci-fi, you know, stuff. Like the guns are coded to you. Like they could be coded to your fingerprint. They be coded to uh, just your 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 signature or like whatever is on you to map the gun to you um, hmm. in a technological way. Um, in that way, um, you know, we couldn't consumers, right? Couldn't sell um, couldn't sell their guns or you know do anything sneaky with their guns. So that's what a lot of the uh, illegal gun market is, man. There's a lot of individuals who just they just stockpile guns and they trade them for gun uh, drugs and things like that. Well, you wouldn't be able to do that anymore uh, because your gun would be coded to you, um, and it doesn't necessarily need any government oversight because it is now your responsibility. Um, it's over the oversight is in your hands. Uh, for me, um, not only <clears throat> would that protect neighborhoods like mine where individuals are selling guns in the, in the black market um, and they're, and they're all over the street, but it also protect people in the homes, right? Like, like young children uh, wouldn't be able to use your gun because it's, it's coded to you. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and another thing is, is uh, another part of the gun control argument for me is just making sure that individuals are, are mentally sound, um, making sure that an individual who wants to own a gun, um, has the mental capacity to own that gun and use it responsibly. And I think that that mental health checkups and things like that should be done um, almost as often as you go to the dentist. Um, and that way we'll be able to make sure that individuals can safely own a gun. Uh, and, you know, from there, it'll just be a safer nation. You know, um, our forefathers, you know, they, they believed in gun control. Um, because if you look back, uh, the way uh, gun ownership was in the uh, beginning of the the nation, um, guns were like almost like a public commodity, right? Like they were a thing where like a, your gun was um was basically um, your right to use if the United States needed you to form a militia or if the United States needed you for war. Like that was the whole point of like everyone having guns. Um, if if something were to go down, uh, you'd have that protection. And uh, you'd you'd be able to go to war if the United States needed you, and um, yeah. it's kind of just been flipped on its head. And you, and the Second Amendment right has been used to kind of justify, um, you know, autonomy. Uh, and we're and it's it's not even it wasn't even made to be that way, you know. Um, it's just been flipped on its head. NRA and you know a whole bunch of organizations yeah. just have just turned it on its head, and now we're looking at people thinking that. Um, that uh, gun control is an infringement on your rights. Um, you know, in reality, it wouldn't be an infringement on your rights. Uh, gun ownership should just be responsible, right? You yeah. Know? Yeah, and the word well-regulated is in there too. Well, like right. well-regulated militia. So again, a lot of people, they like to, you know, they, you know, there's a phrase like people like their constitution the same way they like their Bible, cherry picking the parts that right. they like exactly. and ignoring the parts they don't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. And yeah, and at least, you know, with the smart gun you're talking, like, again, it's, you know, no one's saying you can't own one, period. It's just like, right. I mean, when people are buying them, quote unquote, legally, or at least legally in the state they're in, and they're able to like massacre a whole school and this, that, and the other, you know, it's a 
problem. I mean, it's a problem whether it's bought legally or illegally. I mean, it doesn't change right. the fact that somebody got shot and killed, but when a lot of these gun but crimes think, are done illegally, you could be like, yeah, well, don't don't take it out on people who own guns legally. And it's like, all right, all right. But now it shifted big time right. over the years and the decades where it's like, all right, now we need to, you know, what, you know, what is legal and why? And, or how do we regulate at least and right. take it from there? And I think I think smart guns is moving in the right direction. We're we're literally uh, we're, we're coming to a point in, in time where like our uh, our technology is so advanced that we can do this, you know what I mean? So like, what is the reason why this isn't the uh, the the way that we control consumer-based weaponry, right? Like, uh, maybe we won't need to do something like this for military, or maybe we will. Maybe it'll be an altered version of, uh, you know, if you're a soldier for the U.S. Army only or Marines or whatever, you are everyone who's in your platoon can use your gun and invent that something happens. Are opposed to consumer-based uh, technology where the gun is only coded to you. Um, it's not coded to anyone else in the house, or you can maybe even turn it off if you want like a friend to test out your gun. You know, there just needs to be this, this level of, um, because a big thing for the, um, for gun rights in America, and a lot of people just don't seem to understand this. And I don't mean to go on like a gun rights tangent because it's not something that I, I will be doing too much of, um, with my campaign, I just wanted to talk about it a little bit oh, uh, sure. because of what of the events that happened in Uvalde um, and the NRA and, and everything is going on. Um, the big thing for me is just making sure that everyone um, is afforded the safety, right? Like we have that, that safety um, that, that should be afforded to us in this nation, but we have a, a very, um, you know, gun obsessed populace. And um, what a lot of people uh, aren't aware of is that the uh, the main reason why we're like this is because um, they feel as though gun manufacturers won't have the uh, the ability to manufacture enough guns in the times of war if we're not um, obsessed with them as a community. And uh, you know, I I I guess I could sort of understand that, you know, but at the, at the same in the same breath. Uh, we should just be manufacturing guns on an entirely different level um, where we are with technology. We shouldn't be manufacturing guns for everyone and anyone to be able to use them um, in the fashion that we are now. So, you know, a lot of people don't know that, that the, uh, that the reason why we man reason why we are such a gun obsessed country is because of war. Uh, but that is the real reason why we are the way that we are because gun manufacturers, literally uh have lobbied their way into oh, yeah. being the biggest lobbyist organization um in america yeah exactly and i think that's the part more people need to look at like this whole debate it's not just about individual freedoms or individual fate safety it's about a whole industry you know wanting what's best for their bottom line and to make exactly. as much money as possible. And the corporations, man, they have so much control over everything that we do, which is why oh, yeah. we can't we can't put too much stock into uh, parties, man. We can't put too much stock into party alignment. Oh, uh, no, we, we cannot. Start, you know, we need to start looking, voting for individuals as the people, like as the people that they are. Um, and we got to stop. Uh, we got to stop focusing on like who's getting you know, like 
who's getting the most attention because they might have the biggest budget because they have all of these corporations donating into their campaign. Uh, we need to start actually looking into our candidates ourselves. We need to start doing do. our Google, doing our research, looking at who their corporate ties are. You know, yeah. we need to just be making sure that um, the people that we support with our uh, with our vote are individuals that are definitely for the people. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I know a good way to look into that. You've probably heard of this site is uh, opensecrets.org. That's, I might have heard of it. Um, that's but where you could find out who's giving money to who, who gets their money from. Like, you want to see where your uh, your congressman or your senator or whoever or any candidates, you know, what PACs they're receiving money from, what corporate sponsors they receive money from. It's all there. Yeah, you mind shooting me an email with that later yeah, on sure. whenever you get a chance? Yeah, I will. I when I send you link, yeah, opensecrets.org, I'll send that. I'll be more than happy to send that to you. Awesome, awesome. Um, you know, uh, we could, uh, I could definitely go in about my tenants for my campaign too. I don't know what your next question is, but we could keep going. Oh yeah, no, if anything, no, what else do you have to say about your campaign there? I mean, um, some my huge, my biggest tenets are um, early childhood education, yep. curbing recidivism and houselessness, and creating a circular waste handling infrastructure for the state of Connecticut. Uh, within the different municipalities. Those are three of like my biggest uh, issues that I want to focus on uh, because they are they they will directly impact uh, communities like mine. Um, they'll help moms. Um, they will uh, they will you know help individuals who have been relegated as second and third class citizenship. Um, you know to help them give a, a, another better shot at life. And we need to we need to be working on our garbage infrastructure because. Uh, the way that we're handling waste right now is just uh, it's, it's inconvenient. It's not good for the environment. And I could dive into each one of those things if, if you want me to. You know, no, like please do. Even, oh no, go for yeah. it. So, so we'll talk about uh, early early childhood education first. Um, I want to fully fund universal early childhood education. Um, that shouldn't be an out, outlandish idea. For one, we already have a uh, uh, public school uh, infrastructure that exists. All over the all over America, um, as as bad as it is underfunded, um, there's ways for us to get more funding for that. Of course, because we are spending so much money on military might, we can absolutely dive into that kind of budget uh, to assist our education system and bolster that a lot more than it where it is right now, um, and a bunch of other places. But let's just dive into what it what universal early childhood education is. Uh, universal early childhood education is essentially uh, anyone who's uh, two to five years old will be able to get uh, a fully paid for uh, child care program akin to our public school and the education, a quality education at that, a quality child care uh, provider, uh, because it will be funded by our government and our municipalities. Um, and this is something that we can we can do by appealing to the uh, federal uh, federal government for the funds in order to jumpstart it and see how it will do. And then we'll be able to, whether it's an at-home care facility, we'll be able to pay for their expenses for the year and make sure that they are fully up and running. Um, or if it's a child care facility that can be integrated into our elementary schools, much like they do in uh, Japan, um, we could do that as well and make sure that uh, staff is, is fully staffed, that the teachers are well paid and take 
taken care of and that there's uh, mental health and social and uh, emotional health support throughout the education system from uh, from the from the from birth to adulthood. And that is how we can fully fund that. Um, and I mean, eventually we'd be able to just uh, fund it with our tax dollars after the federal uh, government assists us with getting it started. And we can do that by simply taxing the super wealthy in Connecticut to make sure that they are the ones putting the majority of the bill for our education system across the many municipalities. However, we need to match. However, we need to ensure that that is possible. Uh, we need to make we need to make it easier for our education system to be upheld and supported. And I think uh, depending on property taxes and things like that within districts isn't going to cut it. Oh uh, no. Yeah, it's not, not, it's not going to cut it. It's not. And it we doesn't. can't depend on programs like crack and things like that either, because that what that's doing is busting individuals of color out of the city where they're born in their neighborhoods um, to schools outside of their area. And they end up getting money from uh, from our municipalities anyway. So we need to just make the system a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to say um, regionalized, but we need to make it so that the funding isn't solely based off property taxes. And that everyone is universal. You know what I mean? It should be oh, universal. Definitely, yeah, supported. across the field. Across. Exactly. It should be yeah. universally supported um, by everyone. And that way, there's no way that we can we can sh be shy on the budget. There's no way that we can, uh, a school out in Manchester will have more funding than the school out in uh, Glastonbury or a school out in Glastonbury have more funding than the school in Hartford and this, that, and so forth. The budget will just be universal and all the schools will be able to get funding based on need. You understand? Based on need. It will be based on need. So individuals who are from districts who are suffering from this amount of uh, reading comprehension, this part of math, uh, math, uh, you know, um, uh, understanding, things like that, um, they would be able to get the funding that they need to tackle those issues opposed to uh, where we are right now based on property taxes and this and that, these, these small tax values and your income tax and things like that, we'll be able to uphold the system as a universal uh, system. Exactly. Yeah, my to, state, New Jersey, has the same issue. It's too reliant on property taxes and leave it to the local government. So every time you see some type of um, uh, some type of thing come out that says, oh, here are the top public schools in the country. I mean, yeah, I know the local media will be like, oh, hey, look how many of these top 10 ones are in New Jersey. And, and you probably see the same with Connecticut, too. But it right. but that no way means that all right. the best public schools are in New Jersey or Connecticut. It, it's down to, it's, it's less about state and more about zip code. Because New Jersey right. and Connecticut have, you know, both have a lot of wealthy counties or wealthy towns. Right. But, uh, you know, for every, you know, that, that ranks up there, it's all about zip code because there are like several more in the state where it's the opposite. That It's not the case right. at all. And if we universalize it, man, if we universalize a lot of the uh, systems that we have now, uh, whether that be our Medicare system or our um, education system, then we won't have to deal with it alone. You know, everyone can, can have a piece of it and uh, they'll be able to help every other person, similar to like our social security uh, system and things like that. We're all supporting each other. We're making sure that individuals will have enough funding to uh, individuals, individual municipalities will have enough funding to fully 
fully uh, support their education system. Um, yeah. And that's just my universal early childhood education um, stance. You know, it's something that we we need. What a lot of people don't understand, these are this is the foundation. This is the foundation of everyone's education. Literally, you see a kid who's been in daycare for uh, the majority of the beginning of their life versus a kid who may not have been in daycare for, for, for at all. And you will see the stark differences between how they, um, they are social, how they are functioning um, when it comes to reading comprehension and their understanding of, you know, of, of mathematics. Um, you'll see the, the stark differences, you know, and it's, it's real. Like I've, I've been an early child educator uh, for several years now and I, I see it myself and the students that I have taught versus children who I um, who have who have who have talked to their parents and they say, Yeah, you know, we didn't have enough money to send them to daycare and you see the difference. And um, you know, and that's why I wanna uphold that and we will be able if we pass that type of legislation in Connecticut, it'll change it'll change the change the, the entire state. Um and maybe uh, other states will adapt it too. Yeah, and even though you're always gonna hear some type of opposition to it. It's, you know, once you get over that, once you get over the threshold, once you get over the, the speed bump and, and it happens, you know, so a lot of the opposition will go away because you mentioned Social Security, for example, and that happens to be like the most or one of the most uh, popular uh, programs. And that's because there's something in it for everybody. And even people who haven't hit social security age yet, well, they, you know, their grandparents are on it. So they, so everybody knows someone who is benefiting from it and everybody is somehow having a little bit of burden eased off of them from it. And that's why when people know that, Hey, yeah, I'm paying into it, but I'm getting something out of it. Or my, my family, friends, people, my community are, you know, people, it's less about, Oh, you're taking my money and giving it to someone else. Yeah. No, it's, it's more about, Hey, you know, Hey, this, this is for me, this is for, my grandparents or with education. Hey, this is for my kids. It's for my nieces, my nephews, uh, kids in my community, however, you know, however you want to look at it, you know, people, you know, they, they see it more and feel it more. Right. Right. And, you know, um, in that regard, we need to be supporting our youth. And I feel like, you know, if you can overturn Roe v. Wade during the, uh, the, the, uh, during a national, uh, baby formula, uh, yeah. You know, then then you should be able to understand how important it is to be taking care of our kids. You know, I have a lot of conversations about individuals who say things about taking care of the kids and making and a lot of opposition to Roe v. Wade and all that. And their talking points is so interesting to me about how, you know, we can put kids up for adoption, not understanding the type of trauma that is associated with our adoption system and our foster care system. Yeah. you know, like we have enough people who, who have the ability to even adopt children um, within the economy right now. It's just baffling to me how unrealistic, you know, how unrealistic um, people's expectations are. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's like religion based or like a value based thing. It's just to me is if you if there's enough education around uh, abortion and about their rights, about the necessity of having that freedom then you wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having this conversation. This conversation happened 50 years ago. You know what I mean? Like they they already, they already argued the case and made it, made it so that women have this autonomy to make this decision because of the many, many, many variations of why it's needed. Whether it's race, 
or uh, whether it's uh, just birth complications or uh, you know uh, issues with the uh, the, ch the child's uh, cognitive function or anything like that. There there's reasons why. It doesn't even have to be a serious reason. If a woman chooses not to have a child before that child is technically scientifically deemed a child, then who is it? Whose business is it? Uh, exactly. For that, you know, for for for, uh, for you know, for that decision, whose business it is the woman's uh, decision um, between a woman and a doctor? You know, it is their decision, and I feel like taking away that autonomy. To me, um, we're lucky in Connecticut that Roe v. Wade is codified into the state law, well, uh, but good. a lot of states are not. You know, a yeah. lot of states do not have that ability. Um, but you know, in the Northeast, I guess we have it a lot more uh, liberal. So, um, you know, we we don't have to worry so much. But you know, even with that, there's still a long way to go. Um, I meant to say another tenet of my um, campaign is uh, uh, protections for Black and Brown women. Um, in particular. So, um, because there was a Momnibus package proposed in 2021 uh, that would basically have added the protections for black and brown women. Because a lot of people don't know is that 60 out of 100,000 uh, black and brown women are dying um, giving birth in America. Oh, wow. So, if you, if you put that on the scale, um, that's hundreds of thousands of women who are, who are dying, um, you know, giving birth, opposed to 20. Uh, women who are not of color, 20 out of 100,000 are dying um, who are not of color. And that, that means that there's, we're at three times the amount. Black and brown women are dying at three times the rate of, of uh, as white women, um, white women and women who are, who are not of color. Uh, to me, that that disparity is, is shocking. You know yes. what I mean? Like it's, it's way too many uh, black and brown women dying at the hands of our medical system. Um, yeah, we're 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 rolling back on laws. We're rolling back on protections of women. No, we need to be making stronger laws to protect the women who are most vulnerable, women who are coming from the most vulnerable population. Because what people don't understand, and it's the same thing about our education system, is if we support the individuals who are at the very bottom, the very foundation, like the children, right? We support the people who are the most vulnerable. Then we're building a strong foundation. You can't build, and this is a big thing for me, you can't build a big, beautiful skyscraper on uh, 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 on quicksand. You can't exactly. build it on mud. You can't build it on a, a uh, swamp. You need to build it on a sturdy, strong foundation. And that exactly. is how we build a strong foundation. When we support the most vulnerable population, that's our children, that's our women of color, that's our people of color, that's our individuals who are coming, who are coming out of prison, as our people who are homeless, we support all of these groups, then we are building a solid foundation. We are building a strong tax base. That's what people don't get. You're worried about people taxing you to hell? Then why aren't we building a strong tax base by supporting individuals who are at the very bottom and making sure that they are productive members of society? It's that simple. You know what I mean? Um, and that's just another tenet of my, I have several, my, my, my campaign goals and in, 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 uh, policy uh, they're just so vast, and I plan to spend as long as I need to um, in the legislature to to get these accomplished. Um, and I'm very wow. passionate when it comes to the issue, you know. Wow. So uh, Zoom has new terms, and you know, right, or basically, I can only do this for 40 minutes, so it's about to kick us off in two minutes. So, anything that you would like to plug? Any way people could Absolutely. help your campaign or support you? 
I'm going to ask that if you are a progressive, if you want change in this nation, if you want change in Connecticut, that you visit MikeForCT.org. You make a contribution to my campaign by hitting that donate link. That's Mike, M-I-K-E-F-O-R-C-T.org. Make a contribution to my campaign because I want to run for president one day. You're talking and you're listening to your future president, and I will stand by my values as long as I live. I will die on these values. I will support the community. I'm a fighter for community. So go to MikeForCT.org, make a contribution to my campaign, and help me win this. All right, excellent. And I hope people follow through with that. And Mike, I want to thank you again for being on the program. And I want to wish you the best of luck in November. Thank you, Andrew, man. Thank you. I hope we have another conversation soon. We can dive into this even further at a later date. All right, man. All right. Sounds good. Excellent. And uh, yeah. And hey, if you even run for president, hey, I'm here. Yeah, man. I'll be right here. I'll be right here back here talking to you. All right. Excellent. All right, man. Thank you for having me. Yep, definitely. Again, the campaign site is mike4ct.org. Be sure to sign petitions of candidates you like running in your area to be on the ballot if they haven't achieved the signature requirement yet. To find more Green Party candidates running in this year's general election, visit gp.org. If interested in finding candidates from the Libertarian Party in this year's election, you can find them at lp.org. Remember, it's not just federal office these parties run for, it's also local and statewide offices too. That's important, and it's the local issues that can bring people together even more, and that can impact you directly and unexpectedly if not enough attention is paid or action taken. So take advantage of that opportunity to get involved at the state and local level. To hear more episodes of The Andrew Miller Show, future or previous, Find The Andrew Miller Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other platforms such as Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. You can also follow The Andrew Miller Show on Facebook. Remember, let's move forward together, and for now, peace out.